The information discussed in this episode is intended as general information only. It is not intended for one-on-one medical advice, and you should always consult your healthcare practitioner before making any changes. And if you like the content discussed in this episode, please go leave a review so that others can benefit from it as well. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Okay, Resetters, I know every podcast, Jessica and I come to you and we say, this is the best interview we have had. (laughs) And I think part of that is because we love deep thinkers. We love people that are thinking outside the box on nutrition and fasting and health. And we want to have these meaningful conversations that really change your paradigm and rock your world. Having said all that, This is a mind-blowing, mind-blowing interview. It was so good that it ended up going almost two hours and we broke it into two episodes because we could have listened to this man talk all day long. I think if you didn't have a hard stop, we would have went another hour because I still had a page of questions ready for him. So we will have to bring him back for round two of Dr. Bill Schindler at some some point. We have to bring him back. So let me tell you why I brought Dr. Bill Schindler on. He is an anthropologist and an archaeologist. I'll read his bio here in a moment. And he's been studying the evolution of humans and really looking at what our ancestors did that helped their health thrive. And he actually went on to even talk in this episode about how The things they did even help them reproduce so that we are here today because it was a combination of thriving for survival, but also having the nutrients to and desire to be able to reproduce so that the species could continue on, which is mind-blowing onto itself. But he's looking, he looked at our ancestors and then looked at what we're doing in the modern day and said, what can we bring from our ancestors into the modern world and understand what the perfect human diet is? Mm -hmm. And this has been a question that I have been like sitting with, trying to understand, you know, when we look at carnivore and we've got all the people that are in the carnivore camp. And if you listen to the Paul Saladino episode where Dr. Saladino really talked about 600 studies on why carnivores right. And then I know a lot of you have looked at Dr. Gundry's work on oxalates and lectins. And then we've got so many of you that are vegetarians and maybe you've read the China study or you just for ethical reasons. And so there's, and then there's people that are keto. And so all these philosophies are being tossed around. And what I think we accomplished in these two episodes through his knowledge, he accomplished is helping us bring all those theories together. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of the things I loved about him is that he separated biological needs from like cultural needs. Yes. So he talked a lot about like the cultural way in which we eat and why we eat certain ways. And, and But then he separated that and went to the biological way of what our ancestors actually ate, which I had no idea. So you'll have to listen to oh, what yeah. our ancestors uh, you will be actually shocked. ate. You will be yep. shocked because it wasn't antelope on the prairie like nope. I was thinking. <laughs> nope. 
so I liked that he gave both those perspectives and, and he talked about the pros and cons of each type of, of eating style that people have in this cultural perspective. And then he talked about it in the biological perspective. Yeah. So it, it, it is the deepest level of conversation that I think I've ever had with someone about food, really. Because yeah. it, it came from not just here's the science. It came from what our cultural needs were, which is so incredible to think about, like what, our, what the, the culture of food is. And then it really was, okay, we're, we're living in this modern body that has adapted. That's the, that's the other thing is our digestive systems have adapted. Mm-hmm. And so are we supposed to live like our ancestors? Are we supposed to be like grandma? Or are we supposed to eat differently? And that's what he's going to answer in this. So I'm just, I'm so excited to share it with you. We did split it into two episodes. So you will need to make sure you listen to the second episode. But let me give you a little bit of a background on him so that you can you can know who you're listening to. So his name's Dr. Bill Schindler, and he's the director of Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College, where he's also an associate professor of archaeology and anthropology. Two years ago, he co-hosted the National Geographic show, The Great Human Race, which you can actually find online and and see his series there. Have you watched it? Well, I started to watch it last night, but I didn't have time. But he does have, if you guys go to his website... He has a really cool like 13-minute video of how he goes and forages in his inner in the city looking for plants that he could bring home and cook. Oh, that's cool. It's okay, really have neat. to go watch that. Yeah. We have to watch that. We got and I wanted to bring him back and ask we need to bring him back and ask him like how do you make sure you didn't pick a poisonous one? So, but go watch that and cuz it's really he's he's in, so engaging. And so he spent a year abroad recently, continuing his hands-on research and professional development by immersing himself and his family with indigenous and traditional groups around the world to learn about their food and diets. This is, that's a dream of mine, Jess. I think we need to make that, put that on our bucket list. It's definitely, it's already on the bucket list. We're going to put it on the wall. We need to, because I, I, I love to travel. I know you are like, you love to travel. And I like purposeful travel. So I would love to go study with indigenous people and understand what they're doing. Yes. And what we can learn from them. He is a, this is what he calls himself, an experimental archaeologist and a primitive technologist. So you guys will hear early on that he talks about the tools and how obsessed he was with ancestral tools. That was a really interesting story. His specialties are recreating technologies of the past and learning to better interpret these with the ancestral diets. His current focus is learning how to translate the outcomes of that research into something meaningful for the modern day diet. And he too, by the way, has really been trying to answer the question of what's the perfect diet for humans. So I love like that he has been on that quest, just like I've been trying to figure that out as well. So he's taking his research, applying it to today. He's also fusing it with lessons from the past, ancestral dietary past, culinary arts and a food system. He's working on creating a food system that is relevant, accessible, and meaningful to all of us in today's world. So there's a lot of discussion in this episode about cooking and fermenting and different ways that we can uh, approach our food that will be more in alignment with what our human body is meant to do or meant to eat. 
Yeah. And some great ideas too, for those of you with kids and like, how do we teach our kids these concepts? How do we get them to understand that food doesn't necessarily come from a packaged box in the grocery store and get them involved in the process? Yeah. So mind-blowing. We are, we are so excited to share this with you, Dr. Bill Schindler, beautiful man, incredible journey that he is on, very mission-based. And so we had to split it into two episodes. Enjoy. This is a true pleasure to deliver to you. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash reset academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash reset academy. Excited to see you there. I used to do a bunch of work in Denmark at this open air museum and I was there with a bunch of students and my family. This is about six or seven years ago. And the, the there was this tattoo artist. He's the expert a Viking tattoo artist that was there for an event. And I said, hey, can you do a, uh, a prehistoric tattoo? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, if I make the stone tool, can we use that to do the, you know, do the tattoo with? And, you know, what I, and he said, absolutely. And I make it even better. The ink will, will grind up charcoal and we'll use your wife's spit. So that's what? <laughs> so that's what it is. So I have something to tell you on that about spit. I was on an interview with a guy who was super into sprouts. Do you remember this, Jessica? And he was talking about how to grow sprouts and he takes it from seeds and he spit. He's like, what I do is I spit in the jar with the sprouts. So my DNA is in there as the sprouts are growing. Oh, come on, really? Yeah. Yeah. He goes, it's a little woo-woo. And I was like, okay, I can see that there's 
reasons to spit in places I had never realized. Yeah, I guess there sure is. <laughs> Those are two strange places. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it's nice to meet you. You you don't know it, but you came up in conversation with Brian Sanders. I interviewed him on his movie. And one of the things that he said that was just like total whack on the side of the head for me was about how our intestinal tracts have changed over the years to meet the demands of our food changes. And he's like, oh, you, do- you need to talk to Dr. Bill Schindler. Like, he's amazing. And so anyways, you've been on our list. So we're so happy you're here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And then I stalked you last night and you, I can't wait. I got uh, our audience to give you some background on our audience. So we have over a couple hundred thousand people across all our platforms. And what we do together is fast. So once a month, we do a fast training week and I give people the option. They can do a water fast or I train them on other different types of fasts, but it's all around exercising the fasting muscle. So a lot of times the idea of how cave people lived years ago, I always try to explain to them that, you know, there was, that our bodies have this a natural ability to uh, to thrive in a fasted state because of if we go back and look at cave how the cave people lived. So your work is really interesting to me because I want to kind of dive into well what else did the ancestral people do and what is it that we're doing here in our in our world that is not congruent with that. So I have a ton of questions, but that gives you a a little bit of a background of who you're talking to. I don't know if that's helpful at all. So fasting is obviously important to your your audience. How about, how how are they on sort of the meat, vegan, carnivore, keto? Oh my gosh, we have so many different backgrounds. So we have a big debate. We have a lot of vegans and we have a lot of carnivore lovers. So we have a debate going back and forth. The podcast that just came out this week was on Dr. Paul Saladino with the Carnivore Code. I feel like my job to my community is just to bring what I feel is really solid information and experts in it. And their job is to decide what diet is right for them, what fast is right for them. I am I'm not a huge believer in this dogma of like, you eat one way, do it this way, this is the only way. I feel like everybody has to experience it for themselves. I love that. And I think we're going to have a great conversation for your audience today, then I'm sure of it. Awesome. Awesome. And it's really casual. Jess may pop in here. She may not. And so we just love ha- meeting interesting people who are on missions to do cool things. So, awesome. Likewise. Uh, yeah, awesome. A question I have been asking myself over and over and over again, especially during this pandemic, is how the heck did we get here? How did we get to this place where the human body is so immune compromised? We have so many chronic diseases. There are so many people on medication, so many people suffering, and we're just accepting this as the new norm. So I personally have been going back into like studying what did grandma do? What did great grandma do? And now why I really wanted to bring you on is because you're this expert in ancestral diet and living. What the heck did our ancestors do? That's a great question. And it's so relevant. I'm so glad you're asking it because not many people, a lot of people are asking what did grandma do? And that's important, but it's not the whole story by any means. No. So, so let's, I know, let's start off with your background is as an anthropologist and an archaeologist. 
Yeah. So in in America, uh, we we look at it a little different than other parts of the world. So in some in many parts of the world, especially in Europe, archaeology and anthropology are housed in like completely different buildings on a university campus. It, it, we see anthropo- archaeology as a subfield of anthropology. It's all about the study of humans. It's just archaeologists study dead people, right? And all archaeologists in this country consider themselves both an archaeologist and an anthropologist. Okay. So, okay. So, so you didn't set off, when you went to go study that, you, you didn't set out to take the principles of anthropology and archaeology to diet, did you? Or did you find a passion for, as you were studying, to understand the power of the way our ancestors ate? I've been on a quest my whole life to answer a, a question, and, and it's been for a long part of the time a very selfish quest because I wanted to know it for myself. What should we eat? Like, what, what should I be eating? And it's a question I've asked for, for decades. And it's, that's a question that's always been running in the back of my mind forever. Um, I, had a, I, just, I had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food for most of my life. I was an overweight kid. I was a Division One wrestler where there's an unhealthy relationship there, different one. Once I finished being a college athlete, all the weight came back on and all sorts of metabolic disease. It, it, was, it was terrible. So I've been battling this weird relationship with food and diet and health and body image for a long time. But my path, it, it wasn't until about 15, 16 years ago that everything merged together in sort of a seamless way, you know, everything, everything I've been doing. So my, my father had me hunting and fishing and trapping and camping since I could walk. My mother had me in the kitchen and I loved I mean, I absolutely love spending the time that I did with my father in the woods. I love the experience of hunting. I've never, I've never enjoyed the act of killing anything, but the, the, the experience of hunting was something that I found great joy and value in. Everything leading up to the actual kill and everything past it, those were the valuable, valuable times. But I always felt like I needed to get a little bit closer. I need, it, it was a, an incredible connection, but I needed to connect more. So I wasn't really satisfied with gun hunting. It didn't give me that connection. It gave me something, but not that connection. So I learned to bow hunt. And then that wasn't enough. So I learned, I wanted to learn to make bows. So I started making my own bows and my own strings and my own arrows. And all of a sudden I got to the end, the point. I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> what, do, what, do I do? what do I do? And I realized that there were these people around the world that were still making stone points and I could learn how to learn how to do this from them. So yeah, I sort of went down this rabbit hole in an effort to connect more closely with my environment, with my food, with my father. I, um, it, it led me down this path that brought me to archaeology to answer the, ultimately answer the questions. And so I loved it. The, um, the part of, I've always loved to do things with my hands. So the part of, arch- I'm a prehistoric archaeologist, so my work spans any, anything prehistoric. So in this country, it's pre-1500, but around the world, it's a little bit different dates, but it's stems all the way back to about three and a half million years ago. But the focus that I have is something called experimental archaeology, where in addition to field archaeology, where you have the holes in the ground and the brushes and the screens and things and the picks, I'm trained in a number of different prehistoric technologies, stone tool production, prehistoric ceramics, uh, fibers, net making, brain canning, foraging, these kind of things. And what happens is when you can imagine an archaeologist carefully pulling out this little piece of a rock or a little piece yeah. of something and look at it and they're like, awesome, what is it? Or how was it used? Or how was it made? They would bring it to me and I would, I'd replicate it using the same techniques and, and materials and put it through a number of different uh, experiments and tests to understand you know, how it was used or how efficient it was. So it was very hands-on 
sort of, you know, connection and approach to interpreting the archaeological record. But this is where the, it all comes together. And this is an important, um, I'm so glad you asked that question, uh, sort of foundation for our conversation. You can imagine the amount, I, I've been very fortunate to have been in front of and trained by some of the leading primitive technologists and experimental ar archaeologists in the world, but it still takes a ton of work and a ton of training to, you know, create that skill set. So I would spend massive amounts of time outside banging on rocks, messing with clay and all this fun research, but research nonetheless. And I was out and I made the commitment years ago that I would spend at least an hour a day learning stone tool production. I know it sounds strange, but it did. So this one night, I, my, my oldest daughter was just born. It was about 16 years ago. And I was in the garage and I'm banging on the rocks and, you know, doing these things. And my wife comes out and she's like, hey, it's time to come on inside. I'm like, yeah, I'll be right there. She's like, no, no, no. Like, you really got to come in the house. You have a family. Like, you got to bring, I know you're passionate. It's the rock thing, cool. But <laughs> can you bring it in the house and make it, you know, relevant to the family? And this was, a, again, something that happened over more than one conversation. But she's right. Why be passionate about something so passionate, that's so time-consuming, if the end result doesn't help the people that you love the most, mm -hmm. right? Doesn't help your family, doesn't help the community. So I thought about it for a long time. How can I take all this and make it make sense and have an impact more than just sort of an intellectual exercise or a teaching thing, so make a real impact? And I'm in the shower one day and I had this realization. And it was, for as long as the reality of that conversation went, this was an instant moment. My mind has been in, in the sand literally at this point for decades focused on the things that our ancestors made, stone tools, pottery, whatever, and the role that they played in society and evolution and all this. And what I realized in that one moment was that almost every single one of the, our prehistoric technologies, and I mean, the earliest technology is three and a half, 3.4 million years ago, the first stone tool, that almost every single prehistoric technology has something to do with food. Like it has something to do with food and either getting food, processing food, storing food, redistributing food, sharing food, consuming food, almost, almost every single technology does. Not everyone, but almost. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's really powerful. Three and a half million years of the brightest minds of our ancestors were focused on creating tools and technologies for food. And if that's true, and if food and the way our diets change over time had a huge impact on evolution, and, and I fully believe built us biologically and culturally as a species, then the role of technology and all that is, you know, incredibly powerful. Like, you can't remove it. So I said, well, this is my focus. Like, I, I, this is what I've been doing. Like, this is the, the question I've been asking my whole life is what I should be eating. I've spent decades of my life learning how to make these and, and deal with these technologies. Like, I, I need to focus on this because the, one of the biggest issues, as all of us know, facing us today is how our diet is impacting our health, is impacting the health of the planet. Absolutely. All of it. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of what drove my career and my research and all of my work into the direction it's gone. So what I do basically for anybody listening is I use the archaeological record as for information, as a baseline for understanding our dietary past over millions of years. I, my family and I both go and spend a lot of time living with and working with indigenous and traditional communities around the world that are still 
feeling, they're still adhering something, you know, something in their diet and the way they're processing food is a throwback to the past. It's still, it's still a carryover. And then most importantly, taking all that information and making it relevant and accessible and meaningful today. Because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the foods that we've made and ate in other parts of the world, if I put it on a plate in, you know, in the middle of, you know, Midwest America, nobody would eat it. I don't care how nutritious it is or how good of a job I would have done explaining why you need to eat this. Or, you know, same thing, something we ate 100,000 years ago might be perfect still for our bodies today, but it doesn't fit within our cultural idea of what food really is. So uh, more recently, I've done a lot of training, professional training as a chef to try to be able to bring all this together and get it on in people's minds and um, literally on their plates uh, in ways that are you know incredibly healthy and meaningful, both biologically and culturally. So as you were talking, I'm thinking to myself, one of like my values in life is that I don't like to have shallow conversations with people. And when, when I go out to dinner, like the last thing, I, and I live in Silicon Valley, so I'm, I'm usually like, I'll go out to dinner and somebody will say, I'll say, oh, what do you do? And they're like, I'm an engineer. And I'm like, okay, well, I have nothing. I don't know what to say to that. Like, I, there's no follow-up <laughs> question. I would love to be next to you at a dinner table. I love that the, the what you just walked us through the deep the depth of your thinking around how we approach food is just i mean that was beautiful so i don't know if my audience loved that but i i personally love that and and where my brain went when you were talking was okay so why did they create why were all the tools around food so i'm i'm putting myself like in the cave person i don't know if there's another way we in the ant what do we have a technical term for the person ancestors or, might be better because <laughs> that'll capture everybody whether they lived in a cave or not okay okay so i'm you can see that my my understanding of what happened back then is very limited but they there was nothing that they needed to think about food from a survival standpoint, which is something that we are dramatically missing right now. We don't, we just think of food from a taste standpoint. You know, that's a really good point. And let me, let me, if it's okay, let me, let me maybe flesh that out a little bit. because It's such a great point. There's a couple caveats there that I think are really important. One is, yes, they Food for people in the past, and ma- and maybe it wasn't always apparent in their mind. Maybe it was was necessary for survival and propagation of the species. And if it if it wasn't, and if they weren't able to figure that out, we wouldn't be here having this conversation, right? Yeah, for sure. Ninety nine point nine percent of all species on this planet that ever lived are now extinct. So, I mean, it, it, the fact that we're even here meant that something really cool happened. But on the other hand, and, and maybe I'll, I'll back this up with a quick story. You know, I did this series from National Geographic called The Great Human Race, which we, we could probably talk about later. It's very relevant to this conversation. But before that, before that opportunity came about, this is years ago, my students at Washington College were, uh, the new show Naked and Afraid came out. Right? Have you ever seen Naked and Afraid? Yeah. So it came out. and It's, um, our fa- it's a family favorite. Oh, fantastic. So I, yeah. I actually, <laughs> for, you know, in the middle of all this, survival TV genre, which got really ridiculous at some point, this show pops up, right? Which is obviously, you know, two people come out that supposedly don't know each other and they're naked and all this. And it got mixed reviews. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people loved it for a lot of different reasons. I really, believe it or not, enjoyed it because, and this is something that we're going to spend, I hopefully, most of the conversation talking about. 
humans require technology to survive. We have actually domesticated ourselves to the place that we can't survive without technology. So I love the fact that they're literally, not figuratively, literally shipping people down, throwing them out in the middle of nowhere. And in order for them to do anything, they need to make stuff to overcome their physical limitations. So I kind of like this show, but this, my students were like, hey, you need to be on that show. You need to be on that show. You need to be on that show. And, I, and I'm like, man, I really don't want to be on that show. <laughs> so, but I, did, I didn't want I didn't want to tell my students that. And I wanted to save a little face. So I said, look, this is myself. So I'm going to go home. My wife has, has seen has seen the show. So she knows what it's all about. All I need to do is go and tell my wife, hey, the students want me to you know, get on the show. And what do you think? And she's like, no way. Right? So I go home. And I remember we're up in our bedroom. Uh, it was at the end of the day. And I think we we're probably getting ready for bed or something. And I said, hey, Christina, you know, what do you think? And she turns like this and she thinks about it for a minute. I think that'd be okay. Oh, no. Like, all these feelings, like, what do you mean you think it'd be okay? You realize that they're naked and it's a man. Yeah, I'll be naked. Right? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, but I've seen the show. And I said, yeah, I get, she goes, listen, if either of those people had amorous feelings for each other when it started, 24 hours of not eating, getting bitten by bugs and sunburn and dirt, just the last thing on their mind, it's probably the safest place for you to be. Now, I bring that up because not only is it a funny story, but it's relevant to what you just said with the survival. Species that are surviving don't last very long. Species that are subsisting or thriving have children, and those children have children. So one, of, and this is one of the, the things I battled even doing the show at National Geographic because they, you know, the, the depiction that many people wanted to come across in that show was that oh, we're you know we're starving half the time. I don't. I think that's an inaccurate idea. It's certainly food was a survival food thing, but it wasn't like our ancestors were at the brink of survival all the time. Because if they were, many things that are necessary for the propagation of species wouldn't happen. Number one, a lot of sex wouldn't probably be happening. It'd be the last thing on people's minds. But even if it did, you know, for for females who have bear the brunt of the reproductive part of the thing, you know, the most nutritionally expensive times in their life are when they're infants when they're pregnant, and most importantly, when they're lactating. And mm. if they're on the brink of survival and can't perform those functions properly, they're not giving birth and rearing healthy children who are doing the same thing over and over again. So I do think it's very important for us to understand, A, that our ancestors were at minimum subsisting. Most of, not, not, Certainly, people starved, people died, there were all sorts of things happening. But in general, our species was subsisting over a long period of time. and they were doing it so well that they grew. Their bodies grew and their brains, the most interesting, expensive organ in their body, also grew over millions of years. So not only were they getting enough to allow the species to continue, they were getting enough to allow these big, important changes to occur. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us, is that we literally 
created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man. One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. Yeah. And where I go with that is there's the power. I mean, cause we're a fasting community. There's the power of ketones that, you know, one of the things that I have been really trying to, my message to the human race is you were not meant to eat all day. You were not meant to be a sugar burner. You have a whole fuel source that will really kick in if you go in through what we call feast famine cycling, where you go into these fasted states. So as I was listening to you talk, I'm like, that makes sense that we were able to not only survive, but we could thrive because of this alternative food source. Would you agree with that? I, I certainly would, I, I, 100%. And, but I also think it's important, and I don't, I, usually I, I bring this in a little earlier in the conversation, but I think it's a perfect time here. You know, one of the things I started with was this sort of lifelong quest to answer the question, what should we eat? And, you know, I was really hoping 16, 17 years ago when my research took the direction that it took, that I'd be able to now at a moment like this, be able to answer that question. Like I should be able to sit here and, you know, tell you, okay, this is what we should be eating. But I've realized something more important. I've realized that I've been asking the wrong question. The question, what we should be eating, the question that almost everybody talking about diet and health, whether they're a nutritionist or dietitian or doctor or the USDA, whoever it is, question everybody's asking and looking for the answer to is the wrong question. And in fact, is a question I don't think we really need to ask. We are the only animal on the planet that asks that question. We're the only animal on the planet that hires other people to tell us the answer to that question. Oh my gosh, and that's so funny. All the, other, all the other animals that aren't asking that question, except for our domesticated animals, are doing just fine without asking that question. They intuitively know it. I, 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 the other day I was, I was talking and I, I um, made the correlation right between eating and sex. The idea that, you know, if you think about the two things that our body has such incredible and powerful reactions to, I mean, literally visceral reactions to when you do it right, you feel a certain way. When you do it wrong, you feel a certain way. And, and, and think about it. The, the two most important things that we need to get right in order for our species, to, these are evolutionarily hardwired feelings, emotional and physical responses, right? So I, I, I truly believe that if we're in tune with our body, know what a nourishing meal feels like and are presented with real food, we don't have to ask anybody that question. We have everything inside of our body to answer mm. it on our 
right? We eat to satiation. We eat to fullness. We use our senses to decide whether or not we use our, our eyes, our nose, our mouth, our ears, our fingers, everything to decide whether or not it's suitable to put into our mouth and then how much of it to eat, when to stop, all that. We can do that on our own. The problem is we've screwed that up with you know, people in lab coats playing with flavors and foods and all that. So there is a little bit of that. But for the most part, that's the question we are all asking. The, the work that or the focus that, uh, that I have now with my work is answering what I think is a much more important question. And the, that question is, how should we be eating? And it may sound like it's not a big distinction, but it's huge because that is something we need help with. That how is makes humans and the way we approach food different than any other animal on the planet. And this is this is um, sort of the basis for it. What I've realized is that humans, and this is going to be hard for a lot of the listeners to hear because it's going to sound so weird, but give me a chance, please. No, we, we're all about paradigm shifting here. So go for it. Humans, in my mind, are physically one of the weakest species on the planet. We can't run very fast. We can't swim very well. We can't jump very high. We can't fly. We can't dig into the ground. And if you wonder why that's important, it's like, well, really, that's how we get our food. Like all of those things impact how we get our food. Can we hunt and run really fast and jump on an animal? Can we dig tubers out of the ground with our fingers? Can we climb cliffs and get hunt? Like, no, we, 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 we really can't. Biologically, we're not equipped to do that. We celebrate people like Usain Bolt and all these other people who are the fastest of our, of our species or the best swimmers or the what, strongest. But when you compare it to me, they're amazing. Or the, compared to other animals, they don't really rate very high. The fastest animal on the planet is actually a, a mite that lives in California, right? It's not, oh. We're not that fast. So the fastest swimmer is, a, I think, some kind of a swordfish. So this is important for getting food. But even more importantly and, and specific to this conversation, the, we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet, which means... We are not, and this is the hard part, and I need to find a better, shorter, simpler way to say this. So please, everybody, hang in there for a minute, and hopefully I don't screw this up. The, we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts on the planet, and we are not biologically designed to eat almost every food that we consume, period. Like, we're Interesting. not. If you go back to pre-technology, Prior to three and a half million years ago, where our ancestors, our also seen ancestors, stood maximum about three and a half feet tall with brains about the size of my fist, very low nutritional requirements to fuel those bodies and brains. And by the way, the females, there was a huge amount of what we call sexual dimorphism, where the females were a lot smaller than the males. Not necessarily, we don't think because of, you know, protection, like whatever reasons, but more for nutritional reasons, because they start with a lower nutritional need. And when they go into pregnancy and go into lactation, you know, it's easier for them to meet their nutritional needs if they start at a lower, at a lower scale. So you have all these things working to suggest that they had low diets that didn't have a whole lot in them, right? And in fact, we think they were frugivores, insectivores, the vegetable eaters. I, I don't know why. Omnivores. Uh, well, not omnivores. No, or herbivores. Um, herbivores. Thank you. So herbivores, frugivores, and insectivores. So what they were eating were a very limited amount, and I say limited amount of fruits and wild fruits and vegetables, a truly seasonal basis, only those that were not toxic, which is not very many, and insects. And out of those three things, insects were by far the safest and most nutrient-dense and bioavailable parts of that diet. But that's what their diets were. Nothing else. Maybe, maybe there's some suggestion that they were doing a tiny bit of 
hunting of maybe some small mammals or rodents or something, but I don't, nobody really thinks it was a big part of their diet. Well, since then, the ratio of gut size to body size has actually changed in the wrong direction as we grew. You'd think as our bodies get bigger and our brains get bigger and females grew closer to being sized to males, that our guts should get larger at the same rate because they're responsible. You know, the, the size of your gut is directly proportional to how much food can you take in, how long it can sit there, how well you can break it down, how well the nutrients are absorbed. All those things, you know, are dependent upon the size of your gut. And what we see is instead of that happening, they're actually getting smaller. In fact, our guts are getting smaller and our teeth are getting smaller as our bodies grow in size and our brains grow in size over millions of years. And you're like, whoa, or at least I'm like, whoa. Yeah. This is the exact opposite. The, the, the only two things that we biologically have going for us that allow us physically with our teeth and chemically with our, with our, you know, our, our guts to break down food and get it in a state where you can actually absorb the nutrients and absorb it are going away and getting smaller. Meanwhile, our nutritional needs are skyrocketing. And the only way that's possible is because what humans do differently than other animals. Now, there's a couple small exceptions, but what humans generally do differently than other animals is that we create technologies to process food before it touches our lips to make it safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable. That's what those technologies do. So what other animals do in their, in the, inside of their bodies, we do outside of our bodies. And in fact, what's fascinating is that almost all of those food processing technologies, when done correctly, are mimicking what other animals naturally do with their natural diets, but they do it inside their body. So, you know, for example, a cow, a cow can sit on, a gra on grass and eat grass all day long and support this huge body. We, we could stand, you know, at a fraction of their size, we could stand right next to them, eat the same exact food as them, and our stomachs would be bloated, but we die of starvation, right? Because they have a room in a, a fermentation chamber in their stomach that allows them to properly break down that grass and access the nutrients in it. We would actually die of starvation, even if we were able to eat the same amount of that food. But what do we do as humans? We, not that we eat that much grass, but we eat tough vegetable material by breaking it down and using fermentation, but we do it in a crock on the counter or in a mason jar on the counter and three in a pit in the backyard. You know, and there's a lot of these examples. We can go into them, but and I don't want to um, necessarily get into the weeds at this point. But the point of this is we are designed to eat, our, our guts, our digestive tract are designed to eat a limited amount of fruit, a limited amount of vegetables, and a limited and, and, and insects, really. That's, that's what we're designed to eat. But what we've but our bodies were built on diets that required nutrition from a lot of other sources. So the only way we were able to access that those other sources, that other nutrition, was through technology. The first thing was a stone tool three and a half million years ago, and we know for sure they were being used to busher scavenged animals on the savanna. They introduced meat into our diets. And then, the, you know, then we developed hunting technology and fire and a bunch of other things that we could we can go on with. But the the idea, you know, that question that says, hey, are we designed to eat this? Is almost always no. I mean, because almost anybody asking it is not eating insects and the fruits and the vegetables that they are eating today are nothing like what our ancestors were eating, the wild fruits and vegetables that they were eating three and a half million years ago. So immediately, as soon as somebody starts to say, are we designed to eat? My answer is no, except what I mentioned. And the only other thing 
and this is important to mention, is when we're infants, we're designed, we're, we are truly designed to drink milk from our mothers. And we lose some of that ability later, but that's it. So if we want to really focus on safe, nourishing diets, we can't escape the role that technology plays. It's certainly where ingredients come from and what is we're eating, those are all important things. But we're missing a much larger picture when we don't think about what's happening to that raw material before we put it into our mouths. Oh my gosh. Okay. I, that was mind blowing to me. So I can't even imagine like what my resetters are thinking, but let me just reiterate this back. Cause I, cause you ha- really have me looking at the different types of foods we eat differently. So our species exists today because our ancestors ate fruit and vegetables and insects. But because of the technology that we're using now to I'm just going to say pre-digest these foods, our, our, the human body has adapted and changed and we are no longer thriving on the foods that our ancestors ate? We've outgrown our digestive tracts, right? So okay. our, our, our bodies and our brains, the nutritional needs to fuel these bodies that we all have, have outgrown what our digestive tract alone can do. So we require create the technologies to first access food because number one, like if we don't have the ability to get that much, right? right. If we took away the plows and took away the guns and took away, you know, everything else, we we'd, are, we'd we die. Right. Yeah. But even with that stuff, even if I gave you anybody, all the raw materials for it, we would not be able to nourish our body the way it needs to be nourished without processing that food in the right way first. And, and I, I need to find a different word than processing because, you know, as soon as we say processing, we think of a negative modern food right. processing, which, you know, uh, unfortunately does the exact opposite of what food processing has done for millions of years, right? Right now, food is processed so people make money for shelf life, for storage, for uniformity, and at the expense of safety and nutrients. But food processing beforehand was all for safety, nutrient density, bioavailability. So yeah, we've outgrown our digestive tracts. So what do you say then, like, you know, one of the things, the questions I've been desperately trying to answer is I know our human body right now thrives on fasting, on all different versions of fasting, because I see it across hundreds of thousands of people. But what is the food type that we are supposed to eat right now? And right now we have this, you know, the carnivore diet's really becoming quite popular. We've got vegans that are really upset with how animals are treated and that we shouldn't be eating it. We have the China study that showed us that if you eat meat, then you, you know, you're going to end up with cancer. I mean, there's so, what we're supposed to eat now is highly debated. And what I hear you saying is, yeah, modern technology changed the what we're designed. So two questions. What are we designed to eat now? Okay. And can we go back to the way our ancestors live? Could, could we go back to plant-based, insect-based, or have we evolved beyond that and that there's no going back? Those are great questions. So let me, <laughs> let me, let me try to answer them the, the best way. Tell me, tell me, can you rephrase the first one again? Or tell me again the first one because... Well, so the way I interpret what I hear you saying is that we have a different digestive system. So we can't go back and eat the way our, our ancestors ate. We, and, and in that is this 
cultural debate right now. And maybe it's maybe it's the world I'm in, but that cultural debate, carnivore, vegan, and my standard and what I've been telling my community is you have to find the right path for you. Sure. But when I hear okay. you talk, I'm like, but maybe the human body, given the the technology technology we have to pre-digest our food should be thriving on a specific diet right now. Okay, so I, the, the, again, the short answer, and this is strange and is not the one everybody's waiting for and, or hoping for, is what are we designed to eat? We're designed to safely consume a very limited, and I'm, I keep saying very limited because I mean it, seasonally wild, Fruits and vegetables and a massive amount of insects. I mean, that, that's really what we're designed to eat. However, that's not the full part of the story because we've outgrown what we're designed to eat. What we're required to eat, right, is probably a better question. We require the nutrients from a much larger array of foods that have to be where technology has to play a role in accessing and processing that food to get it ready for, our, for these digestive tracts that are not designed for it. But again, it's weird because our bodies require it. Our bodies were built on these diets. Now, I do have very strong feelings about animals and plants and all this, which we'll get to in just a second. But before I say that, I will say this applies, this, this, this principle that I'm suggesting, this, this applies to every diet out there no matter what it is. So in other words, you can, if you focus on not just the what, but the how, you can be a vegetarian and be a healthier vegetarian because you've done something different with those vegetables and maybe a couple of different selections. You can be a carnivore and probably be a healthier carnivore um, because of this. So a great example is I love, we mentioned, you know, Paul Saladino earlier. I love his approach to whole animal, like not yeah. just the meat thing. And I, I would actually hope, I hope we can get into a conversation about how animals played a role in our dietary past. It's very important to that conversation. But a good example is, you know, we eat in, in modern America on, on average, 50% of a cow and 55% of a pig by weight. So if you weigh the animal and what you end up packaged in the grocery store is about half of that animal. There's so many issues with that. There's a lot of issues with that, in my mind, ethically, sustainably, but even nutritionally, right? Because even though that represents half the animal, it actually represents less than half of the nutrition that that animal could provide and is missing a lot of, a lot of that. So, you know, one thing changing the technology that really changes with animals, there's a lot of technologies that have to happen with plants to make them safe and nourishing and unlock the resource or the nutrients that are in them. But with animals, you know, the cool thing about animals is, the technologies that our ancestors created to access the nutrients in animals were almost solely focused on taking that animal down or capturing that animal, mm. overcoming our physical limitations to actually access it. Because the reality is, in almost all cases, the nutrients that are in animals are immediately safe and bioavailable without doing a whole lot of work. So all you need is a sharp edge and you cut into it. And, and that's especially the true when you talk about organ meats and fat and blood, you know, the visceral things, marrow, those things we don't, you can cook them to improve flavor or whatever, but you don't have to do that to access the nutrients. There is meat. Meat is easier for us to derive the maximum amount of nutrients from if it's cooked, believe it or not. Oh, so interesting. 
So Richard Wrangham out of Harvard has done a lot of work in this area. He's, he's amazing. And he's done, a, uh, he's done a lot of work with fire and the role of fire in our, in our dietary past. And we've had fire with us for probably at least 2 million years. And, and what, he's, what he's found is that you know, meat, when we process meat in some way, we, our body doesn't have to work as hard to get all the nutrients from it. And you even see he, he, uh, even chimpanzees, when they, um, when they consume meat, they'll take leaf, a leaf from a special tree that has a high silica content, like sand kind of thing. And they'll actually eat the meat with the leaf at the same time because it actually works to shred the meat up as they're chewing and it helps that, you know, max out some nutrients. And if you think about the way humans eat raw meat, like raw red meat, if you go to a high dollar restaurant, it's almost always tartare or carpaccio, right? Yeah, so it's I was just going to say carpaccio. Yeah. So that helps access nutrients, but the, the thing with meat that helps access it best, uh, and, and it isn't a huge difference because we get a lot from raw meat, but if you cook it to about medium rare, you, you, it actually is the maximum, maximizes the nutrient bioavailability for, for, for our digestive tracts. So that's with meat, but for the rest of that animal, for the marrow and the fat and the organs and the blood, eating it raw, you can access all the nutrients without any work. So the huge technological change that I would suggest people that are on a, just a meat diet take to maximize the, all sorts of things, but in this case, the nutritional availability of that animal is to eat completely nose to tail like we've done for 2 million years. So that's that. But with, with plants, it's completely different. I was going to say, how do we do it with plants? Well, here's the, here's the problem with plants. Now, I, I, will, I will start this, conver- this part of the conversation by saying you know, a little bit of, I care deeply, deeply about the ethical treatment of animals. I care deeply about sustainability. I care deeply about nourishing my family and my community. My approach to, and, and, I, and I believe I share those same passions with vegans and vegetarians and a lot of other people around the world, no matter what your stance is. My, my approach to maximizing all of those areas, making the most of it, and, and, and is to source as much of the animal foods that come into our house directly myself eat completely nose to tail. We eat like 80 something, if not higher percent of the animals that we, that we kill. We know the farmers that are raising the other animals. We butcher in our house. We, so that, that's my way of, of um, addressing the, the ethical and sustainability and nutritional aspect of all these things. So there's that. But we are omnivores in this house. We, eat, we don't just eat meat. We eat plants. And, I'm, and I know for sure that our ancestors were eating plants as well. But the thing about plants we need, to, we need to realize is that just like every living thing on this planet, plants are trying to survive and interact with the outside world, right? They, they, they are, right? So, and animals do it in a lot of different ways. But the thing with plants is they don't move. So they protect themselves by literally you know, chemical warfare. They, and every, every sing, I'm convinced every single plant in the world has some level of toxin in it. They, they, they all do. They all create toxins. Now, some of these toxins are at such a low level, they don't make, it, make a difference. Some of them, we cook them and the toxins go away. But, but every plant has toxins. That isn't, the every, that isn't to say we shouldn't eat them, but it is to say that we, especially when plants are concerned, we have to not shut our brains off, right? We shut our, in, in certain things about our diets, we question all the time. And people that are listening to this are here because they're questioning different aspects of, of modern diets. And I think that's fantastic. But every single one of us, I'm convinced, there's pockets of how we approach diet that we just don't question. It's like mantra. 
And, you know, one of the things that you're obviously uh, fighting for is us hacking this idea that we shouldn't eat three meals a day. Yeah, absolutely. And not and breakfast. My big thing is like breakfast is the most important meal of the day was a was a slogan developed by Kellogg's for their cornflakes. And yet we we buy into it. So yeah, go on. The thing that is interesting to me about vegetables, and when I really started to look at the way people around the world still do today, but also uh, our ancestors would spend a lot of time and effort finding ways to detoxify plants before they ate them. Uh, it's a huge part of my research, and I'd love to tell you a couple of stories about it. But well, one thing that really blew my mind was when I, my mind shift changed when I first pushed, after thinking about this, first pushed the uh, grocery cart into the produce section. Because up until that point, I would walk into the grocery store, go into the produce section. I just have that default, listen, you know, that, that, that kind of underlying, you know, voice in your head that's saying, okay, if you want to be healthy, this is the part of the grocery store to be in. Mm. And, you know, everything in here is good for you. Some is good and more is better. And that's how we were shot. And then you're like, okay, man, I want to feed my family the best food ever. So you're like filling, you know, without you're shutting your brain off. You're just filling your cart with all these vegetables. And You've been programmed. Been programmed. And what <laughs> I've realized is it couldn't be further from the truth, right? And that's not to say there's not incredible nutrition in the produce section. And we should be putting that into our mouths. But to do it without thinking is dangerous. And, and there's been so many stop gaps, things that have allowed us to not get into trouble with some of it. A lot of these are going away. So for instance, we used to by default eat seasonal, right? So if there was a certain plant that the toxin in that plant could build up in your body over time, you ate it when it was in season, maybe a little bit built up, you might not have even known it. And then, you know, you stop eating it until the next year and then it slowly went away. And, you know, there's these kind of things. Certainly, that would have happened in the past as well. But we don't have seasons in the American grocery store anymore, right? So, so somebody could take spinach and eat spinach every single day, in which I know I know people that have a spinach shake every single day or a kale shake every single day. What I've really started to realize recently is how incredibly dangerous that really is, especially especially with in terms of oxalates with spinach and uh, and kale. So. What I've I've spent a lot of time doing is focusing my research on how, as far as animals are concerned, how people butcher, how people cook animals, and, and, and what do they do with the different parts. And so that's very important to me. But on the other hand, with the vegetables, it's how do they detoxify vegetables? You know, vegetables aren't put on this earth for us to eat. Vegetables are put on this earth. Vegetables are on this earth trying to survive. Okay? They're not here to feed us. So we need to realize that. And first, we got to get through their chemical defenses and detoxify them or consume them in a way that's safe. And number two, most of the nutrition in vegetables is, is locked up and difficult for our bodies to access. So we have to help our bodies get through that and release those nutrients. The easiest, and I'm sure everyone here is already thinking it, but you know, across the board, the easiest way to do most of that at the same time with many vegetables is through fermentation. Ah, I was wondering where you were. I actually was wondering where you're going with it because this is a question I have been also trying to answer. I would agree. Like we're seeing again, we we have this really cool like lens of trying different fasts and trying different diet diets out with hundreds of thousands of people. And I, as I started when I first heard about the carnivore diet, I was like no way. It doesn't make sense to me. You need fiber for your gut, like for your microbiome, like it just totally discredited it. 
And then I started to see the stool tests of several of my patients who went carnivore only. And I saw that their microbiome completely cleaned up and got better. And it started to like kind of make me look at it different. And so we ran literally thousands of people through what I call carnivore fasting, where we had them fast for 17 hours and only eat meat for five days. And I cannot tell you the number of people that lost weight, felt better, joint pain went away, and I was blown away. So then coming out of that, I still struggle because I'm programmed to really believe that vegetables are good. And I struggle to figure out what do I do with my vegetables? Like, you're not the first time I've heard this where the vegetable has this toxin. I'm like, okay, I understand that. But am I only meant to eat meat? And I intuitively came to this place and have been eating like this for the last couple of weeks where I just take sauerkraut and put it in a bowl and put some grass-fed beef on top of it. And that is the majority of my dinners. Well, sauerkraut's amazing. Sauerkraut is amazing. And that's a great, you, you bring up a great example because sauerkraut, which probably everybody already knows is is literally cabbage and salt that's been through the fermentation process but if you if i shredded up cabbage and put salt on it put it in front of you and gave you real sauerkraut that's fermented for a couple of weeks they are two completely different foods with the same ingredients right it's just it's that it's that technology of the fermentation that transformed it into something else nothing that i love to talk about more than wine So I got to tell you about Dry Farm Wines, which is my absolute favorite place to get wine from for many different reasons. One, they're keto friendly. You didn't hear that wrong. They're literally keto friendly. They have no added sugars, no added toxins, and they will leave you feeling amazing the next morning. So go check out their website. Not only is the wine incredible, but the people behind the wine are amazing. You guys know how I love people who are on a mission to serve the world. Well, Todd White and his crew are on a mission to help people drink healthy wines and enjoy the whole experience. So they taste amazing. And if you go to dryfarmwines.com backslash Dr. Mindy Pels, they will actually send you a bottle for a penny. So give it a try. Let me know what you think. And cheers to an incredible wine experience. Okay, resetters. So this episode, hopefully you're enjoying it and you're getting as much information out of of it as Jessica and I did. So he kept talking. So we split it into two episodes. So you can hear our final thoughts on the second episode. Make sure you listen to both of them. And the thing that I love about all of our guests, but this one was in particularly mind-blowing, is the five questions we ask at the end. So we always customize these five questions with the exception of the last question. So be sure on the second episode to listen all the way through because it'll blow your mind, his answers to these questions. I hope you're enjoying it and stay tuned for the next, the second part two. And again, give us feedback. Come find us on Instagram. The Resetter Podcast has its own Instagram page. So come find us there. Uh, Make comments on Dr. Mindy Pell's page. We just are really interested to hear how this information lands with you and hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed doing it. You put the whole foods in, you take all empty foods.
foods out, you put organic food in, and you shake bad toxins out. You eat keto biotic and your microbiome shouts. That's what it's all about. You put fast cycling in, you take over eating out, you put the good fats in, trying seven fast types out. You download Carb Manager where your food is all craft out. That's what it's all about. That's what resetting is all about.